This is Megan. I'm Christy. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. Spooky movie. <laughs> we're back. Hey guys. Hey. Um, we're here with another episode of Homebrew Murder Crew. We are. Um, it's been about two weeks ish. Yeah. Since you heard from us. We're going to get right into it today. We're also stepping up our wine game. Yes. So we made a new batch of wine tonight. Yeah. We're getting back to our roots. Yeah. The homebrew and and the murder crew. And I think in order to like more incorporate the homebrew part of it, we should maybe like record some pre-banter or something because I think it would be nice to have some pre-banter talk and just kind of like shoot the shit between us and then add that maybe to our patreon oh yes on. we've got patreon so, coming yeah. so woo. so we need we need some substance for the patreon and i think that would be just perfect yeah. so kind of a way for you guys to join us in a non-scripted way absolutely um to yeah and on the on the homebrew portion yeah. of the murder crew so. we might be improving our sound quality so Get ready. Yeah. And hopefully improving our wine quality because this was oh, our yeah. last batch, which is like water down. Yeah. She not, she, she not uh-huh. good. I mean, it tastes fine, but you can tell that it's like, it goes down like water. Yeah, it does. And it, it's got a weird taste. Like we had a like store-bought bottle of wine and we're drinking it. We're like, it's good. It's great. Yeah. And then we had like, my, I'm having, it I'm doesn't drink. have the same mouthfeel. Yeah. You know what I mean? That mouthfeel. Yeah. We definitely did something the wrong. Mouth feel. Yeah. We definitely did something wrong. We, did we definitely wrong. did something wrong. Well, we also did something wrong tonight with the match, but like, you know. We think it'll improve the quality of that wine. Yeah. I also would like to bring, uh, to bring, to bring, to, ooh, words. Um, <laughs> I'd like to blame a good portion of my um, inability to process information or think coherently um or just in general um my cognitive abilities today to the fact that i have like a severe sinus infection and because i've been fighting a cold like since last week i'm definitely not contagious anymore don't worry but i'm pretty sure maybe you gave it to uh, me i might have a possibility um but I already have like some wicked weird shit that goes on in my sinuses and my nose. So it just like exasperates those issues. I'm sorry. I know. I go for a CT scan on the 16th to see like what the fuck is going on. Oh, damn. But girl. so right now it's like every time I cough, my teeth, like my, oh. my teeth hurt on like my upper teeth. My yeah. mandible, I guess. No, yeah. That's your mandible. That's your palette like yeah. I, I don't know whatever um science yeah. you know. see i have a little bit of pain right here too and i noticed it when i was driving here but i think it might be like a gland see for me I it get... feels like it feels like my teeth are gonna rattle out of my face oh yeah no i don't have like that. it's no it's no bueno yeah i got this one gland in my cheek that sometimes mm. gets swollen and it feels like like i get yeah like you know how sometimes when you you you, you drink something you can feel yeah, it your in cell, these glands cell, or this um, yeah. salivary gland. Yeah, there. I get it. It's not like a lymph node; it's a salivary. Yeah, gland. it gets yeah. kind of clogged yeah. sometimes. But Since I've I have been, that like, right now. Since I've been massaging my sinuses. Yeah, I like, like I'm not a crack addict. Like going, uh, yeah. you guys can't see what I'm doing, but it looks it looks suspicious. <laughs> so, anyways, nah, it doesn't. Um, yeah, I make it before you get into your episode. I mean, I don't want to do a whole lot of banter today because I think we got a lot of our banter out already while we were making wine. Yes. But um, 
I wanted to share some news, some, some big news. news, right? So again, we'll reiterate once again, we do not receive news, Canadian news on social media. Because well, I, I just want to add, we don't receive any news on any news, any news from Canadian news, news right. things, news sources. Yeah. Um, news sources. There you go. If you're asking questions about that, just go back to previous episodes and you'll, or Google it, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, you'll understand why. Um, however, some big things happen. If you remember a couple episodes ago, Britney's episode yep. about um, this recent serial murders in uh, Manitoba, in Winnipeg, um, that came to light. There's a man who's currently being charged, has not yet been convicted. It's still amongst the courts. Okay. Um, but there was, that kind of drew a lot of attention to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and um, caused a lot of uproar on, you know, people wanting the government and requesting the government and protesting that the government needs to search the landfills. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pushback from the government about that due to costs, due to like endangering people's lives by doing it. And it's like, okay, well, whatever, let's just continue to make excuses. Right. Anyway. So congratulations, Manitoba. You guys just had a provincial election and you guys did the damn thing and you did the PC party fucking dirty. And we love you for that because Mm -hmm. guess what? Um, Manitoba has elected a new government and that is the NDP and the NDP is the new democratic party. Um, I am not going to go into specifics about what the UP UCP is or what, um, the NDP is and what their different platforms represent and that sort of thing. Because if you want to know about that, you can Google it. Okay. That's not what this podcast is about. We don't talk politics that often. However, um, the individual who was voted as um, the premier for Manitoba under the NDP government, his name is Bob Canoe, and he is the first ever elected First Nations premier. So congratulations to Bob Canoe. Um, There's a lot of information out there about his past and that sort of thing. And um, the mm-hmm. opposing parties did a lot to try to tarnish his reputation by using his his past. Like, he has a sort of past. We all do. Yeah. But unfortunately, when you get into politics, that shit comes to the surface a lot because it's used against you and, you know, they try to throw it in your face. Mm-hmm. Again, we're not getting into that. Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that he spoke very clearly on how, like, he's turned his life around and he found a passion in caring for his country and for his province and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, his election both is both a break with recent Manitoba political history and a continuation of the long history of Indigenous involvement in electoral politics in Manitoba. Canoe uh, is Manitoba's First Nations premier, first First Nations premier, as I mentioned, um, though not its first Indigenous leader. Um, but big news because he has a lot on his agenda Absolutely. for Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And one of those things, bringing it back to Brittany's episode, Okay, go back and listen to it. It's called, this is bringing it back. Remember when I Tarantinoed last episode? Yeah. We're going to do that right now. Yeah. Tarantino it! Kobe. Um, bring it back to episode 36, which is Brittany's episode, uh, A Serial Killer in Winnipeg, where Jeremy Anthony Michael Skibicki is currently charged with four counts of first-degree murder for the killings of Contois, Mirren, Harris, and Buffalo Woman. Um, so these four women 
who have been found located and identified aside from Buffalo woman who, if, again, if you go on our socials, you can see her jacket sidebar anyways, that was a whole thing that, um, this, this case, that specific case, um, is what brought people to search the landfills to, yeah. to protest and to start protest landfills, search, landfills, search yeah. for our women or indigenous women. Yeah. Um, can you pledges to search the landfill? And this is the, the prairie green landfill, right? So he pledges to search the landfill, but says federal role wasn't part of that conversation with Trudeau because Trudeau, you know, is Trudeau. However, okay. He insists, Wabakanu insists that he will keep a commitment to search the prairie green landfill for the remains of two First Nations women or more um, who are suspected to have been victims of the alleged serial killer, um, Jeremy Skibicki. He says, quote, we need to move ahead with the search. And that's something that we've committed to in the campaign, end quote. Mm -hmm. His comments come as the federal government has actually pledged $740,000 to further study the feasibility of a search of the landfill. So I, I mean, and I don't understand how, like, we need money to decide. I don't. If I needed money to make a decision in to dig a hole or something like that, like all yeah. I really need is like the click before you dig link, but whatever. I feel like they could get enough volunteers to do this. Right. But at the same time, I don't understand the politics of it. So I'm not going to speak on something that I am not privy to that. I don't have the information. Right, on. Absolutely. So whatever. The important thing is that the federal government has pledged $740,000 to further the study of the feasibility of a search of the landfill. So anyway, so that's what I yeah. wanted to bring to the table is like something that's kind of new coming from coming off of Brittany's case is that number one, um, Wab Canoe is new, newly elected government official and premier of Manitoba. Congratulations to Congrats, Manitoba yeah. because Alberta is currently a UCP government, <clears throat> which is bullshit. And they don't care about the people. Um, but I really hope that this is just the beginning for Manitoba I hope and follow for, through with your promise. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, as a first nations leader of a province, I really hope that that lights a fire under people's asses to get this done. Right. I agree. Cause I think that he will definitely make it a priority at least. Right. But Absolutely. I hope he does. Like we will keep you posted on this. So the biggest thing to come from this, um, Wab Canoe and search the landfills and Trudeau kind of getting on board with fronting $740,000 to talk about whether it's mm -hmm. a conceivable thing or not. Um, one of the biggest things to come from that as well is, um, a lot of people have been, um, speaking up and voicing that they would like. So the Ontario um, Federation of Labor, um, they've had this thing going on for a little bit here for well, a little bit, quite a while. Um, and you can go onto their website and you can basically sign the petition, raise your voice um, to let them know that you agree with this. But uh, it sounds like it's something that's going to be implemented anyways. But the whole thing is that they are lobbying for this creation of a red dress alert. So you've heard 
of an Amber Alert, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is basically issued. You did a whole episode on I it. I did. So a whole tell, us, on Amber. tell us what that is. So basically, an Amber Alert is when a child is missing and they meet. They meet the requirements of an Amber Alert. A notification will go out to all Canadians through telecommunications, through t- uh, like t- telecommunications, mobile communications, and like it'll be shared all over social media, alerting people of the details of the missing child in an effort to try and recover them as soon as possible. So, yeah. <clears throat> so with this, uh, the response times to reports of a missing indigenous woman girl woman girl or two-spirit persons they're far too slow at this point and so a red dress alert like an amber alert would make the difference so this is um a tangible step for the federal government to take uh to end the ongoing genocide of missing and murdered indigenous women girls and two-spirit people so uh again it's just like an amber alert only it's specific to missing indigenous women and girls and two spirit persons. And I appreciate that so much. Yeah. I really do. Um, that's amazing. That really is. Um, that is something that needs to happen. Yeah. So here's hoping that that is something that comes to fruition. And uh, we're going to keep lobbying for it. And we're going to keep updating you on that as well. Uh, we hope that it is something that comes about because let's let's be honest, the uh, tension on cases involving murdered and missing ind- indigenous women, and not just indigenous women, but indigenous men and boys as well. Like we got to stop ignoring the fact that there is missing um, indigenous men and uh, boys as well. Yeah. But uh, indigenous people in general, it's um, f- vastly less than anybody else. Yeah, let's let's be real. Like as soon as somebody goes missing that is known to be indigenous or be from a the reservation, the instant uh, response is that oh, like maybe they're drunk somewhere. Well, or that's the thing. Maybe a they lot of victim are, blaming. Yeah. It's straight. It's ridiculous. So you guys can actually go on to the website o f as in Frank l dot c a. So that's o f l dot c a slash action slash red hyphen dress hyphen alert. And you can sign up to support the creation of this red dress alert. So even though it's been talked about at a federal level at this point and allegedly supported by Trudeau, um, Mm. still head on to that website, sign your name and support it. If that's something that you're passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's something that we, we definitely are passionate about here at homebrew murder crew. Um, but we're going to get into our episode today and not to take away from this, but we're, I'm going to kind of, I kind of am following the, um, the trend of our last two episodes, um, which is serial killers in Canada. What? What? I know this, honestly, like when I wrote this episode, it it didn't even occur to me that I was doing yet another serial killer in Canada story, uh, story, sorry, another Canada, a serial killer in Canada case. But um, this is the reason I chose this this specific case is because it's actually from like my home province. Oh, really? Yeah. So the province in which I was born from. And um, a lot of people that I grew up with have have mentioned this one to me a lot and not so much as like requested that I do it. But like, yeah, it's time that we cover this one. Um, So without further ado, um, I'm going to start. So um, on the early morning of June 21st, 1986, Ooh, year after I was born, yeah. our CMP received a frantic 911 call 
from the shop house of John Glendenning and his wife, Mary Glendenning, in Black River Bridge, an area of Miramichi, New Brunswick, Canada. The caller was 61-year-old Mary Glendenning, and through her panic, she told the operator that the shop that she had owned with her husband and lived above had been broken into and she and her 66-year-old husband, John, had been attacked in their home by three men. She was actually able to identify these men immediately. Wow. The three men were Miramichi locals, one being a local and regular customer of the convenience store in which they lived above, 37-year-old Alan Joseph Legere, and his two accomplices were two local teenagers, 18-year-old Todd Matchett and 19-year-old Scott Curtis. This call started a chain of reactions that would haunt the northern New Brunswick city forever. In 1986, John and Mary were known in Miramichi Valley and adored by the locals. They operated a convenience store in which they lived above. Uh, they opened their store early every morning and would meet and chat with all the locals. They were all friendly. They knew each other by name and they built strong connections with the people in the community. You gotta love those mom and pop shops, hey? Yeah. Yeah. One of these customers, which they had built a relationship with was Alan Legere. Alan Joseph Legere was born. (laughs) Oh shit. I didn't even think of Alan. 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 Sorry. Alan Joseph Legier was born Friday, February 13th. No. Yes. Oh, a red flag yes. already. Yes. Friday. Mamas, you got to hold your babies in on Friday the 13th. Yes. Friday the 13th. So February, Friday the 13th, 1948. To a low income family in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Miramichi, New Brunswick. The area of Miramichi he grew up in was a poverty stricken and surrounded by a large amount of crime. From theft, assaults, break and enters, and his father walked out on his family when he was young, leaving his mother and two siblings to fend for themselves. The three children were made fun of for being poor. Oh, fuck off. And fatherless. No. Yeah, their entire childhood. Don't be fucking bullies. Yeah. So, being without a father, Alan looked up to his older brother as a father figure. But growing up in the environment that he had obviously had a negative impact on Alan's upbringing. He was described as a Jekyll and Hyde type character at a young age. To those he liked, he was sweet, charming, and a loving boy. And to those he did not, he was cruel and spiteful. This dual personality followed him into adulthood. As an adult, he was also friendly and charming to some and loathsome and frightening to others. Alan often spoke and spoke of the resentment of the people of the community. He felt as though they had turned their backs on his family. From a young age, he plagued the community. 
He would commit break-ins. He would steal valuables and food from neighbors and spend lots of his youth in and out of jail. So this is like, he's turning into like this, woe is me yes. kind of mentality. And like that whole, Absolutely. like, oh, if I like you, oh, I'm going to be really sweet mm -hmm. and endearing. But like also to the point where it's to get something out of mm -hmm. you. And it's like, Absolutely. oh, and this is the nature versus nurture thing that we talk about yeah. so frequently. And then you see these behaviors from, you know, like not everybody has the greatest upbringing and no. he's not the only person who went through like his father leaving yeah. and, you know, being bullied and mistreated or whatever. Yeah. But you have a, you have a fucking choice to make, especially as an adult yes. of what's right and what's fucking wrong. Yeah. And he this chose to just, let it consume oh, him in a negative way. Yeah, exactly. So, oh. like, he was known in the community for his violence. This took a turn for the worse, if it could get any worse, when Alan's brother, the one he looked up to as a father oh, no. figure, was struck and killed by a truck while crossing a bridge. Alan's oh. mother instantly turned her anger and grief onto Alan. Oh, no. She would often tell him the wrong son oh, had I been killed and it should have been him. Jesus Christ. Why are you having children if this is how you're talking to yeah. them? You know, like... At the age of 16, Alan had enough. His mother hated him. He had lost his only friend, his mentor, and his confidant. And his entire community feared him. He moved to Winchester, Ontario for a fresh start and to reinvent himself. He found a job as a, sar a car. He found a job as a car salesman. And for the first and only time in his life, he worked a legitimate job. Whoa. But his life of crime came calling back to him when he realized honest work was no fun. Yeah, he began to get paid yeah. pennies. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm to the point. Here, Absolutely. <laughs> Life be tested. Yeah. Bitch. Yep. He began to struggle in his job and began to look for other ways to earn money and resorted back to his life of crime. He went back to breaking into homes and stealing valuable items. He eventually met a woman and got married. They had had two children, but he was not happy in his marriage either. And uh, it was discovered to, that he was having multiple affairs. Alan and his wife divorced only a few year into a few years into the marriage. But in his mid-30s, he had enough of his new life. And at 37, he quit his job and returned to his hometown Ooh. in Miramichi. This time to an area called Black River Bridge. This is where he met John and married Glendenning. In the years of his absence from Miramichi, his reputation had dissipated and the locals were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, believing he had grown out of his rebellious, rebellious youthful ways. People don't change. Yeah. They did not know of his life of crime in Ontario, of course. He was accepted by the elderly couple who owned this little convenience store, but his only interest was in their safe that he had seen in the shop. He believed to he believed to gain access to the safe would be an easy job. He had seen it many times and the owners were old. 
How hard would it be? His plan, however, was not only to break into the safe, but was to steal it entirely. Okay. For this, he would need help. He recruited two local teenagers, also known for their long history of petty theft. 18-year-old Todd Matchett and 19-year-old Scott Curtis. Young boys. There's not a lot of details found on these two because a lot of their records are sealed because they were minors. However, for only being teenagers, they had about six years history of petty crimes under their belt, which made Todd and uh, Scott the perfect accomplices for Alan Legere. Yeah, he's like, beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. They three constructed a plan to break into the shop and steal the safe. So on June 21st, 1986. Like how big is a safe? Like, wow. It must not be that bad. bad. But like. Yeah. But the, this couple was so trusting that like their 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 regular customers just seen them going in and out of the safe, right? Like it's a small community. Because you're, because you're so fucking weak and stupid that you're like, oh, they're old. Like they're not going to fight back. And exactly. That's, that's what you go for. So that's you like. exactly what it was. Praying on these like. Ugh, you guys are disgusting. Yep. So on June 21st, 1986, the trio put their plan into motion. They broke into the shop in, uh, in the evening, at night, and cut the power. But instead of just taking the safe and leaving, they decided to search the home upstairs, oh, where they found John and Mary awake. This had not been planned, oh, but obviously they were woken up to the sound of the break-in. Yeah, because he got greedy, motherfuckers. They took the couple by surprise. They beat John bloody and left him for dead on the bedroom floor and turned their attentions onto his wife. They tied her up, sexually assaulted ah! her, and beat her unconscious. They thought she was dead. They decided to flee without the safe, realizing what they had done and thinking both their victims were dead. What? So if you think both your victims are dead, why the fuck are you leaving without the safe then? Yeah. Like what? They panic. They're boys. They're young boys. Yeah, yes. Like they, so they fled. Not knowing, but obviously, as we know from the beginning of this episode, Mary survived. Yes. She was able to crawl downstairs. She was able to call 911 and report the incidents that happened and identify their attackers. It didn't take long for RCMP to track down the trio and arrest them. They had not expected anyone to, quote, find the bodies unquote until the next day so they planned to flee but they yeah they thought that she was dead they thought too, she was so. dead and she was not they expected that the store would open yeah that somebody would call the police they do a welfare check and then yeah. yeah they were arrested and charged obviously so on june sorry on january 22nd 1987 both todd matchett and curtis scott pled guilty to second-degree murder of John Glendening and to the assault of Mary Glendening. 
They both were sentenced to life in uh, life in prison without the chance of parole for six, 16 years. Alan Legere, however, pled not guilty. During the trial that he forced by pleading not guilty, the he everybody's fucking time. denied being involved in the murder and beating assault, despite being present at the time. He was found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole for 18 years. Okay, so how did they come to that? How did they come to second degree murder? Because because the other two were charged with first degree murder? The first two were charged with second degree murder. Because they hadn't, it wasn't planned. Right. Their plan was to rob. Right, right, right rob it rob the the convenience store not murder anybody it was like a last minute decision so he also got the the charge of second degree murder um but during the trial and it wasn't anything that had been brought up during the trial at one point he had actually picked the lock of his handcuffs and attempted to escape but failed what the fuck dude yeah Allen was sent to the Atlantic Institution, a maximum security penitentiary in Rennes, New Brunswick, where he was kept in segregation. That's not the end of our story, clearly, because it's that'd be short. That twenty would be, minutes in. That would be. Yeah. I mean, that's shorter than our band. Like I said, that would be a microbrew. This started a domino effect. During his time in segregation in the Atlantic Institution, Allen had established an amicable relationship with the staff. He had successfully hidden his Jekyll and Hyde personality and was liked by most of the staff. He became a model prisoner and stayed out of trouble. He worked out, made friends, read books, but this was all part of his plan. He had been playing a long con and working on an escape plan the entire time. So on May 3rd, 1989, so this is now two years later, he was suffering an ear infection. Oh, poor baby. And was escorted by unarmed guards. I could hear you. It must be an ear infection. (laughs) Yeah to the Dr. George L. Dumont University Hospital in Moncton, New Brunswick for treatment. During his visit, he had told guards that he had used the toilet. They allowed him to do so unsupervised. Oh my God. Turns out that this was all part of his plan. Who would have thunk it? He had planned everything down to the visit to the hospital. He had worked on making his ear infection worse. So bad, so bad that the prison doctors couldn't treat it. He poked sharp objects into his ear. Oh my God. And he even poured his own urine into the ear. Oh, did he like puncture his eardrum or anything? I don't know, but it's gross. He did all this so that he would have to come to the hospital. While he was in the laboratory doing his, quote, business, unquote, he picked the locks of his shackles and handcuffs with a piece of metal that he had brought from the pit prison. 
and he emerged from the bathroom holding a makeshift knife he had concealed that he had brought from prison. As the guards were unarmed with everything other than a little bit of pepper spray, he was able to outrun them. And out into the parking lot, he, because like I said, he had been training. His one thing that, one of his biggest things that he did while he was in prison is he's working out. I was just like, I can't stop. Let's say, okay. In my head. Yeah. When you're like, he's working out, he's training. It's just like the eye of the tiger is just playing. I know. I know. It was all part of his plan. That's the thing is that he didn't do anything without some some sort of a, like a plan to it. Of course. He's always conniving. Yeah. So he'd been working out as a plan to outrun these, these officers. Like he planned this whole thing. He ran out to the parking lot. He had become fit enough to outrun these guards and they were unarmed because they trusted him. He built a relationship with them. When he emerged from the hospital to the parking lot, he immediately abducted a woman and fled in her car. The woman is unnamed. She was later released unharmed, but he continued to leave in her vehicle. Alan Legere was now on the lam. Following his escape, he was responsible for a rash of assaults, robberies, and auto thefts. On May 7th, 1989, he was suspected in attacking a man named Max Ramsey. He was found beaten, his wallet and car stolen. His car was later found so in a neighborhood, guy's... neighboring town. This guy's just GTA oh, the fuck exactly. out of this place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On May 10th, 1989, a woman's house was broken into and her jewelry stolen. It was also believed to be the work of Alan Legere. Oh, that... Police put up roadblocks and conducted sky and ground searches for Alan, but he was nowhere to be found. What the fuck? This guy's elusive. Yeah. On May 29th, 1989, Alan broke into a small convenience store in Chatham, owned by a 57-year-old Anne Flam and her sister-in-law, 62-year-old Nina Flam. In the store, he found Annie alone. He tied her up, beat her, and sexually assaulted her before one last blow to her head ended her life. (gasps) Nina was woken to the sound and went to check on her sister, where she was greeted by Alan, who beat and assaulted her as well. Nina faked losing consciousness, making Alan assume she was dead. Smart girl. You think he would have learned the first time? But he didn't. Oddly, though, Alan carried Nina to her room, tucked her into her bed, and left. Fuck. Setting the house on fire, the (gasps) store in the house on fire behind him. What? He then stood outside and watched it burn. He was still outside when Nina tried to escape the fire out the front door. He pushed her back into the house where she actually became unconscious and he fled two officers passing by the scene saw the house on fire and 
and stopped and entered the home where they found Annie's body and Nina unconscious. They were able to pull Nina from the home. and She suffered third degree burns over to 70% of her body. Holy fuck. But she survived. Oh, thank God. When they were able to question Nina, she told law enforcement that her attacker had a chain around his waist. What? And was ramped because he had <gasps> Oh, the, yeah, fuck. Yeah, he had the shackles, right, around his waist. Jesus Christ. Uh, so. How terrifying. Yeah, that, yeah, so we had the chains around his waist and was rambling about a, how society had failed him. Police knew right away. Oh, society has failed yeah. you. They knew mommy. Mm -hmm. They knew right away what the chain around the waist meant. Escaped prisoner. Great, right? No. At the time, there were two other escaped prisoners. Brothers David and John Tanishuk. They had escaped from prison on May 22nd, 1989. So shortly after Alan How Legere escaped. How the fuck are people escaping from prison this easily? I have no idea. Oh, jeepers. Not long after this attempt, this murder and attempted murder on May 29th, the two brothers, David and John, had been located and were questioned and eliminated a suspect, leaving only one other suspect, Alan Legere. Semen samples had been taken from Nina to try and identify or prove that Alan was the attacker. Attacker, sorry. But in 1989, DNA testing was still very new and it had not been used anywhere other than Britain and the United States. Oh. So it was shelved. On June 1st, 1989, a man named Joe Irving chased a man who had attempted to break into his home through multiple yards before the intruder vanished. A local contractor later found a pair of glasses. These glasses were collected and... It was determined that Alan Legere had worn glasses, so the glasses were taken to an optometrist who confirmed they were the same style, size, and prescription as the ones that Alan Legere had been wearing and prescribed while he was in prison. Really? The glasses, along with a knife used to stab Legere while he was in prison, and a hair sample collected in prison of Alan Legere and the semen sample from Nina were sent to a lab for DNA testing. Who stabbed when, him while he was in prison? It was just a local. Like, it wasn't okay. like he had a beef, got stabbed. Yeah, the knife was obviously, dumb. yeah. It was nothing like that, like nothing serious-ish. Um, so at this time, so in Canada... DNA testing was really introduced in the fall of 1989. So the, the knife, the glasses, a hair sample from Legere while he was in prison, the semen sample from Nina were all sent to the lab for DNA testing. So at this time, it was a very slow process. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah, it was slow. So while they waited for the results, Alan Legere continued his reign of terror 
stealing and ditching cars, breaking into homes, and stealing valuables. Jesus. In an October 1989, in October 1989, the Supreme Court of Canada shut down an appeal attempt for Alan Legier, which he had filed before he had escaped. And of course, he didn't show up. Dummy. For some reason, he thought he'd win the appeal. This man was clearly dangerous and delusional. They shut it down. They were like, no, we're not going to issue him an appeal. Clearly, that makes sense. He was on the lam. On Friday, October 13, 1989, another Friday the 13th. Oh, my God. Sisters Donna and Linda Donnie of Newcastle, New Brunswick, both in their 40s, were found murdered in their home which had been set on fire following their deaths. During the investigation, it was found the attacker had unscrewed the light bulbs, cut the telephone line, picked the lock to the back door, entered the home, tied up Linda, made her watch as he assaulted and tortured her sister Donna <gasps> until he ended her life. He then turned his attention to Linda where he conducted a similar attack, which ended in the same horrible way. They recognized the similarities between this attack and the one of Annie and Nina Flam, and immediately Alan Legier became the prime suspect. Yeah. By this point, it had been six months since Alan had escaped, and Miramichi was in a panic. Alan left. So, okay, so it's been six months since he escaped. And so, how many people are dead now? No, three more people are dead. Three more people. And one was 70 degrees. Right. 7% of her body is burned. This is like, you know, like, yes, it's a serial killer, but it's also like a blitz killer. It like is. We've seen in the last couple. Like, Absolutely. there's not a whole lot of lads between the vads, is what I say, right? Like, no leg time. Know. Alan left death and total mayhem everywhere that he went. People, people of Miramichi stopped going out. Security systems were installed. Doors were locked in a community that never had to lock. <laughs> so I grew up in a small community in New Brunswick as well. And Miramichi is a place that I knew. And at the time, like even when I grew up there and I was, I'm 34 now. And I was like, what year were you born? You were 1989. Born? Oh, okay. So it's just during his return. Yeah. 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 So, oh my God. Yeah. But I was, we were here in Calgary during that time. Okay. But uh, like, even then Miramichi was a small place to me. Like we knew of it. It was yeah. very small. It's like a city now, but like it was a small place. So then. you're born in Calgary. I was born in New Brunswick. We moved to Calgary oh. for three years. So you're moved Almost to Calgary when you were born? Yeah. So I yeah. moved to, I was, I think we moved, we moved to Calgary from New Brunswick shortly after I was born. Okay. We lived here until I was four or five. We moved to Nova Scotia. Nope. I was in Nova Scotia until grade four. Yeah. I did grade, then we moved to New Brunswick. I did five to grade nine okay. in New Brunswick. So I don't know ages, but I know school. Yeah, right. Um, so now it had been six months since Alan had escaped and Miramichi was in a panic. Alan left death and total mayhem everywhere he went. People stopped going out. Security systems were installed and security lights were installed. It was actually referred to in the community. The lights that were installed 
were actually referred to as Legere lights. Oh my god, ew. They were a deterrent for Alan Legere. That kind of credibility. Yeah. Like, that's sick. So in 1989, Halloween was cancelled <gasps> in Miramichi. No! Police did not want people roaming the streets at night wearing masks and costumes. That would have been the perfect place for him to oh weasel god, his way in. Yeah. There was no guessing who his next victim would be. Alan knew the area so well and ran it, managed to remain a ghost. The police and community felt helpless. Yeah. On October 28th, 1989, a truck parked outside Morata Motel in Miramichi was broken into. The locked storage bro- box had been like picked and two guns were stolen it was silent until november 14th 1989 a roman catholic priest named james smith was seen by a neighbor around 9 p.m on the patio of the rectory where he lived near the nativity of the blessed virgin mary church the following day, he failed to arrive at oh the God. church for a service he was to hold. People grew concerned immediately, so they conducted a wellness check on him. And what they found was described by RCMP as a scene from hell. Blood everywhere in the priest's home. The priest was found dead inside. He suffered massive lacerations to his chest his eyes had been gouged oh my god from his head he had three broken teeth someone had attempted to rip his tongue out <gasps> autopsy revealed his rib cage had been separated from his sternum. oh my god the attacker had stood on his chest and repeatedly jumped up and down on his mangled body They also found the killer had spent the night in the priest's home, ate his food, slept in his bed, washed his boots, changed his clothes into some of the priest's clothes, and even answered the phone at one point, telling the caller they had had the wrong number. Because of this, there was a ton of DNA collected. Love you. That would later confirm to be Alan Legere. This guy is deranged. Yeah. Like, he clearly doesn't even have a tight. He's just, like, taking out his... So, the women yep. represent his mom. Like, other people represent mm-hmm. society. And then the priest obviously represents religion. The, and yep. people else, who also failed him. Like, yeah. he doesn't have, like, one specific niche. No. He's just, like, on a fucking rampage. The escalation, though. Yeah. Like, they're just... Oh, this one, though. There, I mean, like, that's personal for somebody yeah. you don't fucking know. Absolutely. Whew. They also discovered bloody footprints leading to the garage, and they found the priest's car had been stolen. I was really hoping they'd find him hanged in there. But... Right. The stolen car was later tracked to a train station where the cashier told RCMP officers a man matching Allen's description had bought a ticket to Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Authorities immediately contacted 
Quebec authorities and provided a mugshot and detailed description of Alan Legere, including his tattoo of an eagle on his right arm. How then, original. Uh-huh. Nice tattoo, Alan Legere. Yeah. Like, fucking dick. Get fucked. What a douchey tattoo. Right? Anybody who has the eagle, I apologize. But, like, no. Legere. A man similar, looking similar to the mugshot, although thinner and cleaner shaven with shorter hair, was approached by authorities in Quebec upon arrival to the station in Montreal. The passenger was questioned. He had given the name of Fernand Savoy of Boktouche. Fernand was asked to roll up his right sleeve, to which he did. No tattoo. So they let him go. Guess what? Oh, Fernand is Legere. Alan's tattoo was actually on his left arm. The authorities had given the wrong description. Holy fuck. You guys are dumb as fuck. This You're way too trusting. You're just like, yeah, go take nope. a pee. Yeah, go do this. Yeah, oh, two other people escaped from a prison at the same time. Oh, okay, yeah. It's on this arm. Like, right? fuck. And it's, guess what? It's not an eagle. It's an owl. Or it's an owl. It's an eagle. It's a crow. What the fuck? Yeah. Fernand was, in fact, Alan Legere. <gasps> I knew it. And he slipped through Quebec law enforcement's little fingers oh due to God. the inter- incorrect description given. Little gravy poutine fingers. It now became a countrywide search. And a uh, $50,000 reward was offered by Crime Stoppers for information leading to Legere. On November 23rd, 1989, so now it's eight months following the day he escaped from the hospital, a St. John's, New Brunswick, taxi driver named Ron Gomecki picked up a passenger wanting to go to Moncton, New Brunswick. Okay, so we're back in New Brunswick now? And it's now two weeks later. Okay. So he went to Quebec, and now yeah. two weeks later, he's back in New Brunswick. Yes. So taxi driver Ron Gomecki picked up, picked up a passenger. Passenger got into his taxi, immediately pulled out a gun, and told him, quote, I'm the one they're looking for. I'm Alan Legere, unquote. Alan, said the taxi driver. <laughs> <sighs> Nervous and afraid. Ron Gomecki continued his drive to Moncton only to lose control and crash into a snowbank due to icy road conditions. Oh my God. Alan pulled Ron from the car, no. hit his gun, and <gasps> hailed a passerby, a woman who offered to give the two men a ride. Oh. Once the men were in the car, the woman made some small talk eventually telling them that she was an RCMP officer. (gasps) No! Off-duty. Alan pulled his gun and told the woman who he was, as he had with the now hostage taxi driver. The woman continued towards Moncton until she needed to stop for gas. Alan insisted that he go in and pay for the gas, taking the keys and leaving his two hostages in the car. He 
paid for the gas, sorry, filled up the gas tank and went to go pay. Because at this time, it wasn't paid the pumps. Yeah. While he was in paying, the woman had a spare set of keys in the car. So after a little bit of debate with her fellow hostage, Ron, they decided to start the car and take off. Yeah. Before Alan could even pay for the gas, the like, car was driving off. Thanks for the off. gas, Alan! The woman, now known as Officer Michelle Mercer, drove herself and the taxi driver away from the gas station to safety. She drove straight to the nearest RCMP station and reported everything. The RCMP officers sprang into action, setting up roadblocks and sending officers to the streets. While they were doing this, Alan Legier had stopped a truck and ordered the driver, Brian Golding, at gunpoint to take him to Moncton. He told I Brian. I wonder what he thought when he came out after paying for the gas I know. and the car was gone. Like, he's like, fuck, motherfucker just paid for that gas and his ride is peace <laughs> Like, he used to walk though. out so fast. So, like, to take gas and pay, like, really? You're gonna pay like, for the you're gas? you're fucking criminal. The you're paying you for pay the for gas? gas? Like, wow. Good, like, good on him, though, Have I guess. fucking Snickers and feel better. Yeah. You know, like, and end this rampage. Oh, uh, so as the truck continued its route to Moncton, he told the driver who he was. Oh, why? But, yep. Do you know who I am? He told him that he wanted yep. that he wanted to go to the airport in Moncton to catch a flight to Iran. So as the truck continued on its way to Moncton, after a few hours, the driver Brian suggested they pull over for a rest. Alan immediately said no. Well. Brian then told him that if they dropped the trailer to the truck, the drive would be much smoother and much easier. Alan reluctantly agreed to leaving the trailer. Um, Alan then told Brian to take the back roads, thinking that, you know, they could avoid RCMP detection. Mm-hmm. However, they dropped the trailer, they started taking the back roads, and all this did was alert another truck driver that something was wrong. Yeah. Because trucks don't normally take back roads. Yeah. So he, this other truck driver was like, this isn't right. So he called RCMP and was like, I just witnessed this. Seems yeah. a little bit off. Something seems sus. So RCMP officers immediately tracked down this truck. Yeah. And they managed to catch up to it. They chased it for about... 30 minutes before Brian told Alan that he just couldn't keep going. And Alan said, okay. He allowed Brian to pull the truck over and exit the truck. So what, what, like, why, what does he mean? Like, I can't keep going. Like, he's like, oh, I don't want to be a hostage anymore. Yeah. He was just like, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Yeah. They've been hours. Okay. They've been on the road. He was like, I'm done. Yeah. He was like, I'm done. And Alan was basically like, okay, like. We're good. He let him leave the truck unharmed. Really? Did Alan drive it? Uh, Does he even know how to drive? No. Brian just, the Brian, the truck driver, just jumped out of the truck and immediately yelled, quote, it's him, it's him, and he's got a gun, unquote. RCMP officers pulled Brian to safety, (gasps) did the normal checks that they would do to make sure that he wasn't armed, 
and approached the passenger side of the passenger side door and ordered Alan out of the truck. Alan put his hands out the window, still holding the gun and tossed the gun and said, quote, you've got me, unquote. It's me. Hi. Mm-hmm. I'm it's me. Hello. So he didn't say like, it's me, Alan Legere, the one that everybody's looking for. Nah, he because just he said, you've quote. got me. Ugh. You've got me. You got me. You did your damn police work. Yeah. So he exited the truck and was pinned to the ground by officers when he said, quote, I'm giving up, unquote. Come on. You're giving up? Yeah. Alan, you've yeah, been right? caught. He was handcuffed and taken into custody, ending the 205-day reign of terror of the now-known monster of Miramichi. Jesus. While he was waiting his second trial, he was compared to Charles Manson for his charismatic personality. By the time his second trial would actually commence, August 1991, so two years later, the DNA tests, test results had come back for the semen collected from Nina, the glasses, yeah. the knife, the hair sample, all of the DNA from Father James Smith's crime scene, and it all matched Alan Legere. Shocker. So he was charged of the murders of Annie Flem, Donna Doherty, Doty, sorry, Linda Doty, and Father James Smith. So four more murders, among other charges relating to the theft and breaking and assault of um, Nina. Right. And all of his breaking enders and thefts and whatever. The DNA test was actually granted to be used within the trial, which at the time was uncommon in Canada. So it was one of the first times in Canadian history that DNA testing was introduced to a trial. Oh. But it was proven to be a very important piece of evidence. So on November 3rd, 1991, Alan Legere was found guilty of the four murders and was sentenced to four life sentences to be served concurrently. He would not be eligible parole for another 25 years due to his relationship that he had built with the guard previous prison. Alan Legere was moved to a prison in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, where he remains to this day. Alan Legere has applied for parole several times and was refused every single time. The most recent time was January 13, 2003. That would be January 13, 2001. My apologies. Okay. Yeah. January 13, 2001 was the most recent time that he was denied his parole. Really? Yeah. So he still remains in prison here in Edmonton, not here, but in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, in a high security prison. Um, but just to give you a little bit of update, Todd William Matchett. So he was the... Um, one of those kids. One of those kids. Todd and Scott. So he was the 18-year-old. Yeah. He actually, there's not a whole lot of information on them as they were mine. Like he was a minor when it happened. He was actually granted full parole and released 20 years after the 1986 murders. So in August, 2007, nothing has been reported about him since his release. Scott Michael Curtis, 
died of natural causes at the age of 52 in June on June 7th, 2019, following an unknown illness. Correctional Service Canada reported his death, saying he had been granted parole, I'm not sure when, and uh, they said he was under CSC jurisdiction at the time of his death. So Correctional Services Canada's yeah. jurisdiction at the time of his death. 2019, you said? 2019, yeah. What month? June. June 7th, he 2019. He was one of the first COVID cases yeah. that he died. Yeah, he actually died of yeah, this is an unknown illness. But at the time, he was released from prison. I've actually not known if he died in prison okay. or if he had just died while he was like in parole. Yeah from prison but um so yeah that's that's the case of the monster of miramichi alan legere wow who is still alive today living in edmonton oh, not living. so how old is he now then oh my god so he was born in so that's weird yeah. so that's he's 75 now that's kind of like because he did the jekyll and hyde thing yeah so it's like that friday the 13th like you're a bastard yeah february 14th like love bomber yes there was actually one of his murders took place on a friday the 13th as well yeah so that was when sisters donna and linda dahi of newcastle were murdered was a friday october 13th that's next, next week that's next friday week the 13th of october yeah shut the front Ooh, door that's, no. that's so crazy like I, it's a crazy story and you know what i've heard a lot about this over the years i've but never, I never heard of it before that's the thing is i've heard a lot about it because i'm from the east coast yeah. and i've had a lot of friends but i cover alan legier so here we are covering we are. alan legier because he is a well-known serial killer from my home province of new brunswick who's alive today 75 living in edmonton we should go see him just what kidding is- we should not <laughs> just joking road trip <laughs> hello alan what do they call that in the school they call that a field trip yeah a field trip no. so it's like yeah serial killer but not like he was more it's weird like yeah. how he was motivated and what his like it's not like it was a sexual motivation like bruce macarthur was yeah. right it's or uh a racial thing like skibinky was right yeah it's really strange that it's just like this rampage like this guy just fucking lost it spree killing spree yeah yes. but, it's, but it's not a true spree killing because no. spree killing is all in one day yeah right? that's true it's not a mass killing where you kill a mass of people in mm-hmm. one amount of, in one period of time the spree yeah. killing is like in a day you go and you boom 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 yeah take it's- them out but it is kind of yeah. free, but it's like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. He never like m- killed anybody before. And it was kind of like, 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 um, so Scott and, uh, Scott and Todd. Yeah. They like pre- pled guilty to the murders of the elderly couple. It's kind of right. like one of those things where he was like, like he was probably a part of it, but like it contributed like since so, then he's killed so like four other people. So it's weird that there's like this robbery motive component to it at first, mm-hmm. but then it's like, oh, well, let's see how far we can take this. Yeah. Escalates murder, second degree murder. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, pretty sure they're both dead, but mm-hmm. hey, at the same time, we're going to abandon what yeah. we actually came here for in the first place yeah. and then like 
there are sexual components to because there is sexual yeah. assault included in a lot of his his assaults and yeah. killings but then the priest and then that the was weird. the eyeballs it's like that was a huge escalation right he and it obviously escalation yeah there. it's like it's just like it's up, it, and up down. until like, that is manic the majority of his his victims were women yes and then all of a sudden obviously the fact that he was a priest probably had some sort of a there's some sort of a symbolism the older, for him. The older the mom and, or the mom and pop shop owner yeah. first. That's like a mom and dad. Yeah, complex. and that was more of like a not so much of an accident as a like not planned. And from what I understand, the two nineteen, the two teenage boys that were with him also participated right. in that. So it was kind of like a in the moment they were kind of like, oh, let's do this type thing, and right. then it kind of probably. Yeah, because he's charismatic and he can talk yeah. about anything. Well, you guys will obviously post pictures on our socials. Absolutely. So, like, I actually, I wasn't able, it was hard for me to find the details on his initial murder of John and Mary and Glenn Denning. Because when you search Alan Legere, all you find is his, like, fucking yeah. spree that he went on. Yeah. And, like, I just searched really hard for information. So, it's like, there's so much more that, like, so that triggered something in him. Yeah. Right? Like, I believe that it could have started as just yeah. a robbery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And even if you search Scott Curtis and Todd Matchett here now, like, it's like, it's hard to find shit on them. But you can also see how, like, his victims kind of fit into how he feels he was wronged by society. So, like I said yeah. before, the, the mom and pop shop, sorry, Mary and John, John um, yeah. would be representative of his parents. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, like, your, your dad left, fuck you, you're, you're gone. Yeah. Boom, take you out your mom's yeah. kind of abandoned you yeah. although you're she was still present but she just gave up on you yeah blamed you and said you should have been the one that died the wrong yeah. child died boom you're gone okay um, now it's like these two women maybe he's having the four women that followed yeah exactly obviously sexual frustrations and mm -hmm. fail, failed relationships or whatever yeah and he obviously okay. felt that he should have some sort of dominance and stuff over women exactly and then the priest is a religious representation of something there. Like I don't think we, yeah, we don't need to I'm analyze. Not a profiler, no, but, but I'm like just having this discussion, right? I don't think it's too far fetched to us to be able to like, yeah, connect that link to the religious side. You're of things. not that like, complex, Ellen. No, no. So I, that was brutal, though. Like that that murder of the priest, like that was like you you can see the escalation of this <laughs> man. <laughs> The unnecessary violence that went with that. So yeah. and, and the before that, it's like the murders, the sexual assaults, and then setting it on fire. Yeah. And uh, like incinerating it. And yeah. then you get to the priest and you're like gouging out eyeballs, breaking ribs. You're fucking just wow. He always he obviously That's had a insane. lot of anger towards yeah. this unknown to him. But priest. it's different in the sense that like there's all that one he doesn't have an mo no say, well, he did at first when it was like murder set you on fire by yeah right but that didn't last long no no that, that did not last long he obviously was like very he was an unorganized serial yeah. killer yes. for sure yeah yeah unorganized and he just wanted to he just wanted to 
cause as much mayhem and chaos as he could. Megan, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Um, we're getting close to the Halloween, so it's spooky season. If you have a request for us, um, last week of October, we're obviously not recording because it's Miss Brittany's wedding on October 24th. So until then, if you have a request, let us know and we'll try to fit it in. Absolutely. Tell us anything. If you got some spooky stories for us. I'm sorry I'm so sick and my sinuses are just rejecting my face right now. Mm, I was so sick last week. So I probably got you sick. I'm so sorry. I warned you. I know, but I said, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. So if you have any suggestions for us, you can find us on our socials. So, so, so. So, uh, so, 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 you can find us on um, Instagram and Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also find us on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. And we are trying to, it might be Homebrew Murder Crew podcast. I should check that. But um, <coughs> either way, you'll find us. Please follow us on TikTok. Please, if you are, are listening to, to this yes. and you have a TikTok, follow us. We're, Even if you don't want to watch our videos. Yeah. Followers. We're trying to get to a thousand followers so we can go live and yeah. give you guys kind of like some live Come, You want to see our beautiful faces, please. Yeah. Um, Follow But us. you can also email us at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Yeah, that's homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thank you, because I'm so nice. Send us your requests, any comments that you have, any corrections that you have. We are very open to criticisms reach out to us thank you so much for um tuning in to listen to my episode my my case today about alan legere the monster of miramichi um so we will be back next week thanks for your support and And cheers cheers i thought that we were gonna break glasses for a second i I was like oh damn that would have been pretty cool though but anyways thanks for listening And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.